Thank you, Brother Bruno. Appreciate the wonderful voice the Lord has given you. The gift to sing His praises. You have edified my heart tonight. You have brought us into the arena of worship. And I must say, He is altogether lovely. Don't you just love Jesus tonight? Are you in love with Jesus tonight? If you're not, you should be. Because he's worthy of all love that could be lavished upon him. Kind of reminds me of a song Brother Roloff used to sing. Now, I'm not a singer, yet I've never met a preacher who didn't think he could sing. <laughs> never met a singer who didn't think they could preach. My wife said, well, there's no mistake about it. You can't do both. <laughs> Brother Olaf used to sing this. There's something mighty sweet about the Lord. There's something mighty sweet about the Lord. It really doesn't matter what the people say. There's something Mighty sweet. Isn't that a simple little chorus? Let's start this service out tonight singing that. We're in no hurry. We came here to see him. There's something mighty sweet about the Lord. There's something mighty sweet about the Lord. It really doesn't matter. What the people say, there's something mighty sweet, and there he is. Oh, I love him tonight. He saved me as a 16-year-old man, young man, grew up in a preacher's home, a Bible preacher's home. I heard the Bible in my mother's womb, I'm sure, and didn't even know it. But I didn't get saved till I was 16. I repented of my sin and trusted Christ as my Savior. And I could sing what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. The very next night, the Lord called me to preach, but I didn't surrender. My daddy was a preacher, his brother was a preacher, his daddy was a lay preacher. Why, my mother and my sister would have preached if we'd let them. <laughs> Both my brothers were preachers. And Tim, I didn't want to surrender because it was expected of me. But I'm telling you, for one year, from June the 8th of 71 to June the 14th of 72, I could not withhold myself. There was a fire burning in my bones. And on the 14th of June, 1972, I walked the aisle at the same place I got saved, a place called Beulah Land. It was a church camp started by Brother Harold Clayton in the Greenwood Village Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. Brother Mark Whittington was the camp pastor. I walked forward and I said, Brother Mark, I can't help it anymore. I've got to surrender to preach. It's, God's put it in me. I've got to. And I've told young preachers down through the years, if there's anything else you can do and be happy, you better do it. Because this isn't for sissies. But he called me. I'm not worthy of that. He just counted me worthy. No, I love him tonight. I'm so unworthy. Such an unworthy servant. But I'm grateful for the good grace of God tonight. And sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, what a wonder you are, you're, excuse me while I worship for a moment, brighter than the morning star, you're fairer, much fairer. Than the lily that grows by the wayside. Precious, more precious than gold. 
You're like the rose of Sharon. You're the fairest of the fair. You are all my heart could e'er desire. Sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, what a wonder you are. You're precious, more precious than gold. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 tonight, be turning there. If you have an old Schofield Bible like me, that's page 1252 and 1253. I want to ask you a question tonight. Is there anybody in here that's a perfect Christian? Oh, y'all answered that well. I never ask for raised hands on this. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Now, other than the home church, do any of you know of a perfect church? An empty one. Well, I'll tell you what. If you know of a perfect church, and I say this to all of us, from me to you, let's none of us join it. Because the moment we do, it's going to go down. <laughs> I agree, an empty one. <laughs> I want to focus on the church tonight. As a matter of fact, the title of this message is Marks of a Growing Church. What really constitutes a growing church? And I think what you'll see in the text verse that I read tonight is the emphasis here is not numerical growth. I'm not against that. But the emphasis here is spiritual growth, Christ-likeness. You do know that that's the Lord's eternal purpose in our life, to make us more like Jesus. Romans 8 and 28, and we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's eternal purpose, Amen. And so the emphasis here, here tonight on a growing church is not so much numerical growth as spiritual growth. I do want to put this addendum in. You can have numerical growth without spiritual growth, but you cannot have spiritual growth without numerical growth. I'm talking about a church now, not an individual. I want you to read with me. You know, the Bible is divided into contextual paragraphs. The way the Lord has led me to study the Bible is expositionally. That's the mode of preaching that God has laid on my heart to preach expositionally, to break the Bible down into contextual paragraphs, to look for a major theme. And like the hub of a wagon wheel, all the points are spokes that come back to that wagon wheel. And magnify the hub. The theme of this contextual paragraph tonight, dearly beloved, is a growing church. If you look with me to verse number 13, I want you to see this. Till we all come, here's what Paul is saying. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And by the way, I just want to put another addendum here. We are going to get there. Because in the book of Jude, this is what he said about the church. Now unto him that is able to present you faultless before the Father without spot or blemish. We're not perfect yet, but we're going to be one day. But it's kind of like my daddy said, you need to be careful about making that statement, we're not perfect yet, because... It'll give people the impending feeling that they don't have to try to be. We ought to want to be. We ought to try to be. Knowing that that'll never happen on this side of glory, it still should be the desire of our heart. But look what he goes on to say. 
He says in verse 13, till we all come, and for the sake of time, I'll read this one verse, in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And look what he says here. Unto a perfect man. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now here's what I want to do momentarily. I want to give you three indispensable elements to a growing church. Now, I know this is a growing church, both spiritually and numerically. This is a good church, but no matter how good we are as a church, there's always room for improvement. You stop growing individually when you think that you've arrived. We need to ask God to give us a a daily vision of ourselves, our our sin, and the ways in which we fall short that we might strive like the Apostle Paul said to the church of Philippi, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark. Now here they are. Here's the three indispensable elements of a growing church. Number one, leadership. I'll come back and pick these up, but leadership's found in verse number 11. You read that for yourself right now. Leadership. Number two, the second indispensable element to a growing church is membership. Membership. We see that in verse number 12. Look at it. I won't read it now, but there it is right there. He's talking about membership. Then the third indispensable element is fellowship. Fellowship. We see that in verses 1 through 3. I'll come back and pick up on that in a moment. But here's what I want to say tonight as I kick this thing off. And that is when you take leadership and you take membership and you bring it into fellowship... You have an entity of which Christ said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's look at leadership for a moment. Verse number 11, and he gave. Who is he? He is the one that, he is the one that ascended in verse number 8. But in verse number 9, we know that first of all, he descended. These verses are parenthetical in this text. They're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He descended into the lower parts of the earth, and that's where paradise was. That's why, and the reason why we know the Bible says Jesus on the cross said this. He, he He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And also in the Gospels, he said this. He said, uh, he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so also must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't go to hell. He suffered hell on the cross. Jesus went to paradise. It was a compartment of Hades. It was separated by a great gulf. We are given a conversation in Luke 16 where uh, Abraham, Father Abraham, conversed with a rich man in hell. They could see each other. I want you to know according to these verses, when Jesus died, he went into paradise. And when he walked in, he had all of their attention. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to listen to me. And he looked over at Abraham and said, Abraham, I was the ram that was caught in the bushes. He looked over at Joshua and said, Joshua, I didn't come to be on anybody's side. I came to take over. He looked at David and said, I'm the Lord who is your shepherd. Now pack your bags, boys. We're going to the third heaven. And he took two handfuls of paradise and hauled it out of hell and took it into the third heaven. And on the way up, he gave gifts unto men. Tony Evans would say it was such a cataclysmic event. I love those big words. Don't even know what they mean half the time. 
and I'm going to say them. It was such a cataclysmic event that Old Testament saints came out of the grave and walked around. I'm telling you, friend, this whole world knew that the Creator was in its bosom. And when He came out, it erupted. That's what verses 8, 9, and 10 in this text are all about. But here's what He did when He resurrected. He gave gifts Unto men, verse 8 says, and here's the gifts. Some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What these identifiable gifts define are gifts of leadership. There's some 21 different spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture depending on how you count them. Some come up with a different number because they say some of them are repeated more than once. But if you were to count them all, there would be some 21 different spiritual gifts listed. They're divided into three categories. Number one, there are seasonal gifts. Gifts that were good for a season, but when that season was over, they passed away. I won't get into all that tonight. I'll get lost if I do. But there were seasonal gifts. Number two, there were service gifts. Gifts of service. And these are largely mentioned in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapter number 4. The seasonal gifts for the greater part are mentioned in as Donald Trump would say, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Yeah, I loved him. Good old guy. We're going to miss him. And then there are supervisory gifts. Seasonal, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Service gifts, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapter 4. And then there are supervisory gifts, gifts of leadership mentioned right here in Ephesians chapter 4. Those are the four places in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are mentioned. Here he's talking about supervisory gifts. He's talking about gifts of leadership. I'm not going to get into all this. I just simply say that all these gifts are not still intact. One of them at least was seasonal in nature and that is the gift of apostles. I, I'm humored sometimes when I drive around towns and I'll see a church sign and it'll say, Apostle so-and-so. The only problem with that is it's just not true. There are no apostles today. There is no such thing as apostolic succession. They passed off the scene. They were seasonal. Even though they were gifts of leadership, they passed off the scene because to be an apostle, you had to have seen Christ and ministered with Christ. And the only differentiation was the Apostle Paul, and he said, I was an apostle born out of due time. So there are no more apostles. There are no more prophets in a future sense. You know why? We have a more sure word of prophecy. <laughs> I don't need to read Gene Dixon's column. I've read King James's books. I'm here to tell you, I know what's going to happen. The last chapter says Jesus wins and the devil loses. I'm glad I'm on the Lord's side tonight. Woo! Texas A&M, they go, whoop, whoop. I think they're somewhat Pentecostal. And even though there are no future tellers anymore, the spirit of a prophet is one of authority, thus saith the Lord. And in that sense, there are still prophets in the New Testament church. The major gift, there's two major gifts to the, of leadership to the New Testament church. The first one is evangelist. 
And it's not just an itinerant speaker. Uh, The word evangelist there has to do with one who spreads the gospel. It's more kin to the missionary that the apostle Paul was. That's why when he was leaving off the scene, he passed the baton to young Timothy. And what did he tell him to do? Do the work of an evangelist. And that's the difference between a missionary and a pastor. A missionary is trying to work himself out of a job. And a pastor is trying to work himself into a job. But there are still missionaries. Thank God there's missionaries. As long as there's a great commission, there'll be missionaries. And in a sense, every one of you here tonight are missionaries. You're spiritual evangelists that should go into the highways, byways, and hedges and spread the good news that there's hope even in the midst of a pandemic. Jesus saves. He's on the throne. Woo! Glory be to God. And then there's pastor. And notice the word some is before apostles. The word some is before evangelists. The word some is before prophets and pastors. But it's not before teachers. You know why? It's a dual gift. The pastor should have the ability to lead. That's what a pastor is. He's a shepherd. And he should have the ability to feed. That's what a teacher is. Pastor. Teacher. You have a pastor teacher. He got up here a moment ago and expounded a verse about a prophet's reward. You ought to thank the Lord for it. Can I say tonight that a church is not healthy and a church cannot grow without the right kind of leadership? Let me point out four things. I'm going to move on. Kind of like Elizabeth Taylor told all eight of her husbands, I won't keep you long. Number one, he's a gifted man. The pastor is a gifted man. Leadership is gifted. Look what he says. He says, but unto every one of us, verse 7, is given grace according to the measure of the gift, the gift of Christ. Look what he says in the next verse. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Those are the saints that were in prison in paradise in the heart of the earth. And look what he says. And gave gifts unto men. Can I just say this tonight? Not anybody can pastor. Not anybody can preach. It takes more than a seminary degree. My daddy used to say, son, there's nothing wrong with those degrees, but what you really need is a temperature. You need some passion. You need some push. You need some gumption and some get up and go. But mark this down, my friend. Not just anybody can pastor. And by the way, not just anybody can preach. Oh, you might give a speech. You might sermonize, but you can't preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God without a gift to preach and teach the Word of God. To lead and defeat, a la 1 Peter chapter 5. He's speaking to those bishops, those pastors, he said, take leadership in the body of Christ, but not by constraint, nor by filthy lucre, and feed the flock of God. So the right kind of leadership is a gifted leadership. Let me say secondly, the right kind of leadership is a given, given leadership. It's right here in the text. Look what it says, verse 11, and he gave. Who's he? The Lord Jesus. He gave. He's the dispenser of the gifts. He's the all-wise one that knows what the church needs. And he dispenses those gifts. And he spreads them out in such a way that when brought together, it edifies the church. Can I say this to you tonight? Tim Pollock is the gift of God to the home. That's what he's saying. Go ahead, Clay. I clapped too. I played golf with him today. He kicked my tail. Forgive that baseballism. I'm sorry. Gifted men, given men. That's why you ought to love him for his work's sake, as the scripture says. That's why you ought to pray for him. That's why you ought to support him. He's worthy of double honor. <laughs> 
And that's why, my friend, you ought to pray for him. And that's why you ought to follow his faith. Now, every one of those verbs I just used are used in scriptures denoting the attitude and the spirit of the body of Christ toward their pastor. I love you, Tim, and I commend you. Number three, he's a guiding man. His job is to guide, to point the way, to shape, and to mold. His job, my friend, is to feed the flock of God in such a way and to give them leadership where they know the path to walk and the way to go. He says it very clearly. Look in verse number 12. He says, He tells you what this gift is for. He says, for the perfecting of the saints. That's his job. His job is to perfect you. And sometimes he might have to rebuke you. Sometimes he might have to correct you. And if he's doing his job, and I know he does, sometimes from the pulpit, my friend, he might even have to rebuke you or say something that might even hurt your feelings. But I want you to know if his heart is right, and it is, it is for your good and my good and our good. It is to knock the flesh and the dross of the flesh off of us that we might shine like diamonds for the glory of God. He is a gifted man, a given man. He is a guiding man. He's a guarding man. Look what it says here in verse number 14, that we henceforth be no more children (coughs) tossed to and fro (coughs) and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. One of his jobs is to guard you. To guard you from those things that would harm you. Those influences. Those messages that would harm you. Those false doctrines and those false prophets that would harm you. All you have to do is to read the letters to the seven churches and see that in Pergamos and Thyatira, the Lord Jesus told those pastors, that's who he's writing to, the angels are the messengers of the church. He told them to warn them in Pergamos about false doctrine in Thyatira about false teachers. It's Tim Pollock's job to stand here and say you need to be careful. Not all voices you hear are from God. It's his job to do as John said, to try the spirits and know them. For any spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is antichrist. It is his job in these days of confusion, in these days of topsy-turviness. Boy, that's a Texasism. Dear Lord. Topsy-turvyism. Ism. It's his job to say, be careful what you hear on CNN. Matter of fact, don't even listen to it. All it is is the communist news network anyway. Did you hear that? Is this on YouTube? Play it for them. (laughs) Buddy, I'm telling you, if they're listening to me on YouTube, they're coming after me. I told Johnny, I said, we better get an insurance policy, sweetheart. They come in. But it's his job to guard you against the forces of evil. I love that psalm. Have you ever read Phil Keller's book on the sheep and the shepherd? tells the beautiful story of that verse where it says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And he tells the story of the shepherd, how when the spring snows melt and the waters flow down the Judean hills and the green grasses begin to grow up on top of what they call tableland. It's flat areas. I've been there. I've seen these places. It's flat areas on top of the lower Judean hills. And the shepherd would go up there and he would look as he went up. He would watch the rim rocks and see where predators are. He would go up there and remove poisonous weeds or plants that would sicken the sheep. He'd get out on his hands and knees and scurry and move about that tableland. That's what David was talking about. That's what a good shepherd does. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That's Tim Pollock's job here. That's Luke Pollock's job. And any pastor that God has ever put his hand on. Now let me move on to membership. Membership. 
Look at verse number 12. Let me point out three things about the right kind of membership. And by the way, this is indispensable to a growing church. Listen to some pastors talk and listen to their attitudes. You'd almost think they don't think they need membership. But I'm going to tell you something. You're, you need your pastor and your pastor needs you. But here's what he says. Number one, for the perfecting of the saints. What is the right kind of membership? Number one, it's a, it is a maturing membership. The word perfecting there does not mean sinless perfection. The word perfecting there means what it means throughout the host of the New Testament. And that is to be mature, to be maturing, to be growing. Now some people don't grow because their pastor won't preach. You don't have that problem here. He won't lead and feed. I've heard some people say, well, our pastor's just not feeding us. Well, sometimes that can be true. It's not true here, but sometimes it may be that he's not feeding you. It may be that you've got colic and you're throwing up because you're a babe in Christ. When you ought to be eating meat, you're drinking milk. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me just say this about a growing or maturing membership. You and I should be farther along today than we were yesterday. You and I should be farther along this month than we were last month. You and I should be farther along this year than we were last year. Our lives ought to echo the words of the song. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher right. right kind of membership is a material. Let me ask you something. Are you growing spiritually? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you growing in patience? Are you growing in faith? Are you growing in godliness? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and patience. Hey friend, you've got all the Spirit, but the question is tonight, does He have all of you? Well, I just need a little more of the Spirit. You can't get any more in all you what you've already got. He just needs a little more of you. Maturing. Number two, the right kind of membership is a ministering membership. Believe it or not, God has called no bumps on the log. Pew sitters. Onlookers. People who just occasionally drop by to check it out. I told you a moment ago, there's some 21 different spiritual gifts. Do you know that most of those spiritual gifts constitute what we call service gifts? Now, I've never been able to uh, understand why some people want to magnify the seasonal gifts. And everybody wants to speak in tongues. But what about the service gifts? Like hospitality, administration. Did you know that one of the spiritual gifts is giving? Did you know that? Well, I bet that just blessed your heart. You're doing real good, preacher. I think I'm going to check out. No, you won't. I'll holler so loud. I'll get. I'll get in your. I'll get in your head. I want to say this. I believe everybody ought to give. Some people are gifted to give. And you watch those people. God will channel more through them than he does other people because he knows he can trust them with it. I found it amazing, Tim. People, everybody wants to speak in tongues. Everybody wants to heal. And everybody wants to do this and that. But nobody wants to give. And nobody wants to serve very much. Nobody wants to, uh, to go to the rest homes and the nursing homes and preach there. Nobody wants to visit the shut-ins and go and sit down with people who are just lonely, whose children have left them to rot in a nursing home. No, everybody wants to be on the platform and behind the pulpit with the lights on them. They think it's so glamorous. 
And I'm here to tell you while it may be necessary, I want to say this, the service gifts are just as indispensable as the supervisory gifts. This church needs Tim Pollock, but this church needs you. And he doesn't just need you sitting on a pew to whatever gift and whatever capacity he ha- you have. He needs for you to find out what that gift is and slot yourself in and serve God every day of the the week for the glory of God and the good of one another. You say, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I can believe that. And I think that's good. It means you're humble. You got to watch out for these people who know what it is. But what you ought to do is get with your pastor, maybe your assistant pastor. Maybe another spiritual man in this church who you know is a prayer warrior and get with him and say, hey, listen, I don't want to just sit on a church pew. I don't want to attend even if it's mopping the floors and cutting the grass. I want to serve, pray with me and ask God to open my eyes and let me see what my gift is. Talking about the right kind of membership. It is a maturing membership. One that is growing spiritually. It is a ministering membership. It is a membership that is engaged in service. When I think of that, I cannot help but think of Romans 12 and 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's you give your, you present yourself as a living sacrifice. And that word present there is a military term. And here's essentially what it means. It means I'm here, Captain Jesus, and I'm reporting for duty. I'm reporting for duty. I don't care whether I preach, teach, sing, or lead in silent prayer. I'm reporting. Dude, you know it's amazing what God can do when we can get to where nobody worries about who gets the credit. That'll deal with our pride, won't it? I got to move on. I'm like Elizabeth Taylor. I just don't want to keep you too long. I'm guilty of that. You ought to hear my wife sometime. Mark. You, is she watching? You know I'm right, sweetheart. Watch this. You don't have to preach the whole Bible in one night. So I don't want to do that. Let me close with this. Not the message, but this point. Some of you got real excited. I thought we were going to break out into a wave offering. (laughs) Here it is. Maturing, ministering, and molding. Now hold on a minute. I'm not talking about that gray stuff that gets on bread. We got enough of that in our church. Old stale mold. They've been right where they are for years. They've doing the same thing they've been doing for years. They're not growing, but brother, they're like that book, that verse in the book of Psalms, I shall not be moved. I don't care what that preacher preaches. I don't care what he asks for. I shall not be moved, and that's biblical. We got enough of that kind of mold. No, when I talk about molding, I'm talking about taking form taking shape. You and I ought to be growing and ministering into such a place in the body of Christ where our gift is our gift is contributing to the whole church taking shape the shape of the body of Christ and one that is complete one that is perfect in the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse number 16. You got to see this. He says, From whom the whole body 
fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. In other words, as this body begins to take shape, as people with their ministering gifts begin to mature, this body begins to take shape. And like the fingers of the hand, they grab one another. They fall into their place and they wrap each other tight. And in doing so, that which might have been incomplete or that which might not have been strong becomes stronger every day where the big bad wolf can't come by and blow it down. And believe me, he's out there. The big bad wolf of the devil himself, he'd love to tear this church up. He hates what's going on here. He hates your auditorium and your children's ministries. He hates your training school. He hates the good things of God that are going here. He hates it that souls walk this aisle and get saved. He hates it the night that we got in here and began to worship the Lord and give him praise. He'd love to blow it down. The world would love to blow it down. And there's people among us tonight that may not be real. And for whatever reason, my friend, they have resentment in their heart about things of days gone by. Maybe they felt like they weren't treated right or somebody did wrong and they stay here to cause all the trouble they can cause. My daddy used to call them buzzard Baptist. He said, they never come around till there's a stink going on. And then they fly into the church and they perch on the back of their pew. And they look around and go, he's messing up our church. You'd be surprised at the people who when God begins to bless and souls begin to get saved because they're cranky and ornery, they sit there and they, they're angry in their heart and don't even know why and say, boy, we used to just be a nice little old church, but look at all this that's going on. I mean, it's something we ought to be praising God for and thanking God for. The church isn't just going to stay in these four walls. It's going to go out these doors. It's going to go into the highways, byways, and hedges. It's going to go into the fields of this world and tell everybody that Jesus suffers. Come on, Elizabeth, get this done. You know, sermon's like a baby. I mean, you literally go into labor. <laughs> and at some point, thank God the delivery's over. <laughs> it's like the Calvinist was about a certain bad thing happened in his life. He went, shh, well, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> Number three, fatalist. Fellowship. Let me show you fellowship. Here's what fellowship. It is God's people interacting. It is God's people getting along. It is God's people ministering to one another. It's not just a spit and whittle club as we say in Texas. It's not just a domino table. It's not just game day. Nothing wrong with those things. Well, don't do the spitting. That can get pretty nasty. It's not just things that we do that we would do anywhere, any day of the week. No, it's activities that we engage in whereby we strengthen one another. We minister to one another. We encourage one another. That's what Hebrews 10 and 25 says. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. That day is the day of His coming. It's coming. It's approaching. And everywhere I go, I'm finding a bunch of God's people that need to be encouraged. And not just in here in the pulpit and auditorium, but out there in the cafe, sitting at a table, sipping on a green tea latte, chai like I had tonight. If I was in Hawaii, that'd mean shaka. Hang loose. Here at home church, it means home church cafe. Fellowship, let me show it to you. It's here. 
It's always in the text. You know, our job as preachers is not to practice imposition, imposing our will on the verses, but exposition, extracting from the verses. And look what he says here. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, forbearing one another in love, spending time together, being around each other as hard as that may be for some folks. Look at the next verse. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, working together, striving together, walking together, loving one another. Laboring together. Let me just point this out and I'm going to be done. Not too quick. But I'm going to get there. Let me tell you what fellowship demands. It demands two things. You're going to see it from the text. Number one, it demands unity. Unity. Now unity is where everybody is one. Everybody becomes one. There's a oneness about us. There's a unity. This one thing I do. We don't focus on where we differentiate. We focus on what we have in common. And the truth is tonight, there's a lot of diversity here. But the one common denominator in the church is a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't have to be the same height. We don't have to be beautiful bald heads like Brother Tim and I. Bald is beautiful, you know. We don't have to be tall. We don't have to all be short. We don't have to all be just alike. How can we get along? How can we interact? Because we have the same Savior. We have the same Lord. We have the same Bible. We have the same Spirit. He goes on to say that here. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting that he uses the word one repeatedly here. Talking about the bond of the Spirit and the unity of peace. He said there's one body. That's the church. One Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Capitalize. One hope. That's the blessed hope. The coming of Jesus Christ. One Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. One faith. The faith that was delivered to the saints. One baptism. One God and one Father. You know what most churches split over? They split over non-essential issues. Well, I think it would be better if we just had the electric piano up here. Get rid of that baby gray. Drums, get rid of those drums. You're just saying that because you can't play them. I think the carpet ought to be brown. Isn't that amazing? Whether there's drums or an electric piano, no matter what color the carpet is, it's not going to make a difference. One iota of a difference in the salvation of a soul. And yet people are captivated by that. And it is those non-essential issues where most church splits take place. What we need to major on is not the minors, but the majors. We need to look at what we have in common. Let me point this out about unity. I'm hurrying, Elizabeth. I'm hurrying. Some of you need to smile tonight. I'm not very good at humor. But some of you need to smile. Some of you look like you sucked on a ripe persimmon. Dear Lord, help us. I just wish everybody would get saved. So they could be as happy as I am. (laughs) Dear Lord, it is that silly. Then point out two things about unity. Number one, it needs to be worked at. Look here it says, endeavoring. Endeavoring. In verse 3, forbearing. Endeavoring means to work at. Forbearing means to put up with one another. 
Let me ask you married couples. Anybody here has the perfect marriage? Don't raise your hand now. Because you're lying if you do. I mean, you know, I've learned, my wife is the polar opposite of me. She's so quiet. You have to keep going, huh? What'd you say? Speak a little louder. I mean, buddy, I'm just, I'm like a fire alarm going off half the time. I'm like a bull in a china closet, and she's like, it's beauty and the beast is what it is. It just doesn't make sense. That's the way most marriages are. Most marriages aren't because two people are just alike. Usually more than not, they're opposite in a lot of ways, even though they may be the same in some way. I don't care how many people or marriages we're talking about. There are things about both of us that just grind at us. I can't stand it. She chews her food with her mouth open. He snores. I have to move to the other room. Those may be cheap illustrations, but you'd be shocked at how much that happens. You'd be shocked at what people get divorces over. I pastored for 37 years. And the thing I never understood is going down to the Family Law Center in downtown Houston, Texas, and listen to a judge give a no-fault divorce. I thought, dear God, that doesn't even make sense. Are you really that ignorant, judge? You think that these people are here and want to split up because nobody was at fault? And then they finally come to the conclusion it's incompatibility. I go, I need a healing. (laughs) Brother, if that was a reason to get a divorce, we all better get one. Truth is, good marriages don't just happen. They're not by accident. Good friendships the same way. They've got to be worked at. Endeavor, forbear. But unity not only must be worked at, it must be walked out. Look at verse 1. Look at this. I thought this was interesting as I was studying these passages. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. Look at the word vocation there. He's talking about their spiritual gift. He's talking specifically to those who are in leadership. Brother Tim, us. That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Wherewith ye are called. In other words, live up to the gift. It's got to be walked out. It must be fleshed out. Let me tell you something. It, it, It kills me today that our kids are graduating from high school and most of them are leaving the church. Now, maybe not here at the home church. You've got, you've got something going right. You've turned a lot of that around. But it's happening all over America. Our churches are emptying out. You know why? Because far too long our children have watched mom and daddy not walk it out. Come to church, amen. And on the way home, meet the preacher for lunch. They've had enough of that. And they know hypocrisy when they see it. It's got to be walked out. And I've got to get done. Number two. The right kind of fellowship is not only based on unity, but diversity. Unity is where all become one, and diversity is where one consists of all. Look how he shifts the paradigm in this verse and changes the emphasis. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And then look what he says in the next verse. But unto every one of us. Diversity. I'm not talking about political correct diversity. I'm talking about biblical diversity. And here's what it is. We're all a part of the same body and we're one in Christ. But all of us are individual souls and individual people. And we are all equipped with an individual gift and an individual calling And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are diversities of operations, there are diversities of administrations, there are diversities of gifts. That's diversity. 
All of us having different spiritual gifts, different capacities, different callings, and different gifts that God brings together, not to glorify them or lift us up and put us on a pedestal, but to profit wherewithal, to profit the church. What's important is not the individual, it's the team. These athletes today, they make me want to barf. That's a good old Texas word. Barf. It's all about me. Look at me. There's no room for that in the church. It's all about him. Look at him. And let me tell you what brings glory to him. When God's people can come together in diversity and unity and glorify him as the Savior of us all. You know what diversity means? Number one, it means we're all different. We're not all the same. Let me tell you something, husband. The worst thing you can do is try to change your wife. Did you hear me? You women are saying, thank you, preacher. Appreciate that. And then the worst thing you women can do is try to change your husband. It goes both ways. God is uniquely gifted. Now, they've got faults. We've all got faults. And where they need to change, you know what? Prayer changes things. And if God doesn't change them, He'll change you. And He'll give you a greater capacity and a greater patience to love them. That hurts, doesn't it? Ouch. Diversity just means we're all different. Number two, it means we're all dependent. It means that within that difference, we need each other to bring about completeness and wholeness. I use this illustration, Elizabeth, and I'm done. It's like a four-part harmony. When I first showed up to Howes Anderson College in the fall of 1974, as a 19-year-old young man, first day I walked into the lobby of Howes Anderson College, Dr. Robert Billings and three other men were singing a barbershop quartet. They even dressed the part. A barbershop quartet. Some of the most beautiful harmony I ever heard. You see, this is really what diversity is about. It's all about harmony. It's all about four different parts congruently coming together to produce a beautiful melody. Far too long, the world has listened to the church fuss and fight and cuss and split up. What they need to be able to do is walk in here and be blessed by the harmonious spirit of God's people that though they be different, they're one in Christ. (laughs) And they love one another. There's not very much not to love about my wife. There's a lot to not love about me. I sweat. Reminds me of Brother Pete Surovchek, a Slovak believer in our church. He escaped the Iron Curtain and came to Houston and was a member of our church and he didn't know how to speak English and we were, you know, if you've been in Houston, it's humid, to say the least. I mean, everybody thinks they've got COVID in Houston. I mean, it's you. I'm not making fun. I know the seriousness of it, folks. Hey, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And boy, we were out there painting the shed and he got all sweaty. He got real sweaty, Brother Tim. And he goes, Brother Mark. And I said, what, Pete? He said, I'm wet. I do that sometime when I'm preaching. I'm wet. I holler. I'm loud. I have bad breath. There's just not a lot not to love about me. I'm glad he loves me. He doesn't love me because of me. He loves me in spite of me. In church, we've got to learn how to do that. I used to tell my people, we're going to have a Wednesday night meal. Come on, Elizabeth, get done. We're going to have a Wednesday night, and it's not about eating, it's about fellowship. I don't want you to eat with the same people. Don't get your little club going. 
I want you to eat with different people, people you never talk to and never eat with, and I want you to get to know them. I want you to eat with your enemies. Oh, yeah, we have enemies even in the church. Look at the way she's dressed. Listen to him. I can't stand them. Sound like y'all heard that before. I said, eat with those people. You know why? Because it may not be them that needs to be changed. It may be you that needs to be changed. It's real easy to love people who love you. Let me tell you where the love of Jesus comes in. When you learn how to love people who hate you. We, when we get there, we'll understand what fellowship is all about. I'm talking about a growing church tonight. This is a growing church. You have good leadership. You have wonderful membership. Let me ask you, do you have fellowship tonight? Maybe the Holy Spirit has pointed out some area in your life that you need to let him work on tonight. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed.